0: Uh, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians as we begin our new study in this book, um, this Lord's Day. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. If you're using a few Bibles, it's found on page 980. Our text is this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. And and not only the hearts of your people, but those that you are calling to yourself as well. We pray for that ministry this morning, that God, you would be glorified and exalted. Uh, Lord, I am a weak vessel, and we are a people who struggle um, in this world. Um, But God, we pray for your supernatural work to be done here this morning, that your word would accomplish its purpose And bring glory to your name. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I entitled the the sermon this morning, Greetings. Because I think that's uh, oftentimes uh, how we view these opening verses of Philippians. That there's really nothing more than greetings or salutations in a letter. Kids, it would be like if you wrote a letter and you wrote, Dear so-and-so. You know, dear mom, dear grandma, you know, whatever it is that you might put in there. Or maybe you've received a letter that says, to whom it's concerned. Or maybe that very personal letter in your mailbox that says, dear valued customer, right? (laughs) You know, that's a greeting, right? And, And it's nothing but just sort of the preliminaries. You just sort of want to get past that so you can really get to the good stuff that is there in the letter. And there is a sense in which Paul's, Letters. This is a greeting and it does have the typical format where Paul writes and and was written in that day and time of stating the author and the recipient and then a greeting or or good wishes or a blessing. But we ought to not be too quick to jump over these opening verses of Philippians chapter one and two. And so I want to look at these this morning and I want to begin by looking at uh, the author or the recipients and the author. Uh, this morning. First of all, the recipients. And, and by the way, for sort of the full backstory of, of the church plant in Philippi, I encourage you to read Acts chapter 16. Um, but here we have Paul and the Philippians, and they shared a history that had forged a strong bond with them. This is the church that Paul loved. I mean, the reality is Paul loved every church. But this one he had a special affinity with, as we will see here in just a moment. But, but even before Paul and Silas and their team reached Philippi, uh, this city had already had a lot of history. And I want to walk through just a little bit of that, as it has some bearing on the book uh, today and in the weeks ahead. Uh, first, start about 400 years before Paul even showed up in Philippi. Um, the city had been taken over by King Philip II of Macedonia, and you may say, who is King Philip II? He is Alexander the Great's father. Okay, if that gives you any kind of context, and that's actually why the city is called Philippi after King Philip. And then, about a hundred years before Paul comes on the scene, then Octavian, which was Caesar's nephew and General Mark Antony, which you had heard of before, I'm sure, uh, defeated Caesar's army. And as victors, they made Philippi a Roman colony. That meant that the citizens of Philippi had the same legal rights and privileges of of Roman citizens. And and not only that, but many uh, retired military veterans settled in Philippi. And so it very much gave it a very Roman flavor, at least in its architecture and in its language. where where much of that region the language was Greek actually in Philippi the language was Latin Um, the religions in Philippi um, because it was so tied to Rome of course was emperor worship uh, as the primary religion but there were also other local deities that they worshiped as well but it is worth noting that, that Judaism had not taken much of a foothold here as a matter of fact uh, there was no synagogue in Philippi because they didn't reach the minimum 10 men necessary to, to have a synagogue. And so all these influences sort of molded the Philippian mindset that Paul and Silas met as they traveled to this important city, this important Macedonian city. And so Paul and Silas show up, and outside the gate, Paul and Silas find a riverbank where there's women who were hungering to know the God of Israel, and they were gathered for prayer. And one of these women, as you know, kids, you probably heard this in Sunday school, about Lydia, and how she was a textile importer. She was a seller of purple, uh, and she believed the gospel. And it says in there, she and her household were baptized. Is she then hosted Paul and Silas in her home you see that in Acts chapter 16 verses 11 through 15 but then later as as Paul and Silas are staying with Lydia they encounter the slave girl and Paul cast out a demon out of her and of course that made her owners very upset because they were making a profit off of her as the demon allowed her to be a fortune teller and uh, once she heard had the gospel cast out and heard the uh, heard that then she no longer could do that and so they became very angry and as a result they brought accusations against paul and silas and uh, they were advocating as it says in Acts 16:21, 21 um, that paul and silas were advocating customs that are not lawful for us as romans to accept or to practice and so of course the the um To sort of quiet the mob, the the leaders of the community had Paul and Silas beaten and imprisoned. And we know from the story of Acts 16 that by the next morning there had already been an earthquake and a midnight conversion of, of the jailer and his family in verses 25 through 34. And so now Paul is writing to this group of people along with others that had joined the church at Philippi. And it's about a dozen years later. And and there is this uh, deep affection that Paul has for the Christians, as I said earlier. And I say that because he uses many terms of endearment. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Let's turn over to chapter 4, verse 1. He talks about longing to be reunited with his friends. He goes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, and longed for so there was a a real bond there between the apostle paul and these uh, philippian christians but on the other hand uh, the members of the church were aware that their church had problems and what i talked a little bit about this last week uh, but let me just reiterate Um, first of all we see that there's a real self-centeredness there and you see that in the way that paul addresses a lot of his uh, um, comments in chapter 2 especially verses 3 and 4 uh, 14 and 15 and then even chapter 4 verses 2 and 3 as he saw, talks about um, Euodia and Syntyche and how they were struggling um, uh, with disagreeing and he was calling the saints to come along and to help them but there was also a uh, suffering and physical threat that was uh, coming to this church well can you imagine that being in a church that's squabbling and fighting with one another, and you're also encountering persecution from without. How difficult would that be to go through that persecution when you don't have a united mind amongst yourselves? That just makes that suffering even worse and I think would be more intense. That's sort of my take on it as well. Um, but there was not only this suffering and physical threat, but also spiritual threats. There was these, the false teaching of the Judaizers in chapter three, verses two through 11. And also even temptation towards sensuality, which is mentioned briefly in chapter 3, verses 18 and, and 19. But of all the things that were going on, the frictions and the disagreements that divided these believers were the things that weighed most heavily upon Paul's heart. And so let me just talk about Paul. I mean, it's no wonder then Paul describes himself and Timothy as slaves. I know the ESV says servants, and I think that's actually an unfortunate translation because the Greek word is doulos, which is really a word for for slave. It refers to someone that's lower than a servant. A slave was one that had to do what other people wanted them to do. It wasn't someone that just served in a house, but they were um, seen as very lowly. Um, As a matter of fact, a Greeks spoke of slaves as talking tools, talking tools. In other words, they were a little bit better than a hammer because they could talk and they could do more sophisticated things, but they really were just a tool to do your bidding. And so slaves had to submit to their personal preference. They had to submit their personal preferences, their opinions, their conveniences, their schedules, even their physical health and safety to the agendas and the whims of their masters. They had to do everything that their master said with no talking back or disputing. And yet, Paul presents himself and Timothy as Christ's slaves. Now, it's interesting that as you look at this greeting that's, that's here in uh, Philippians, uh, Paul typically will affix a title to himself and a different title to his counterpart. So like, for example, in 2 Corinthians, if you look at the the opening chapters of that, you see that Paul refers to him as an apostle and to Timothy as his brother. But it's only here in Philippians that Paul opens an epistle by associating a colleague with himself and then giving a shared title, and in this case, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that in this letter and not anywhere else? Well, the Philippians, who were divided over the issues in the church, needed to see Paul and Timothy, um, to see in Paul and Timothy the counterintuitive truth that these men bear God's authority because God has captivated them as his slaves. Because God has captivated them. As his slaves, let me just say this: Paul and Timothy were living proof that those whom Jesus saves, He also enslaves. You're like what, Pastor? I'm not sure I heard that right. Say that again. Okay, those whom Jesus Christ saves, He enslaves. Now I don't think we oftentimes think of the Christian life in that way, um, but the Philippian Christians needed to see that in their self-centered preoccupations and their competing agendas in the church what joyful slavery looks like close and up front and and this is very counterintuitive for us as american christians i mean uh, if you ask the christian on the street this would be fun to do this afternoon wouldn't it just to grab christians on the street and interview them and you know and say hey my pastor said that when Jesus saves you, he enslaves you. What do you think about that? You know, and and I think that most people would say, well, what kind of salvation is that? You know, that deprives us of our cherished autonomy and subjects us to the will of another. That doesn't sound like freedom to me in Christ. But consider the link between being saved and being enslaved by Jesus from from. This perspective and that is that everyone is somebody's slave uh, despite the common misconception that we can be captains of our own destiny right which is oftentimes what we hear out in the culture no matter how much we would like to think of ourselves otherwise our every plan and action is driven by a desire to avoid pain or to achieve gain Uh, by pleasing or placating some lord or some idol in our lives, right? So we're being controlled by something else. Uh, and The master that we serve may be our our money or success. It may be our affections or romance. It it may be reputation or respect. You demand that your kids are going to respect you. You may be enslaved by other people's opinions or terrified or Uh, of rejection or ridicule or maybe you're afraid of being alone and so you do everything you can to make sure that those things don't happen you also have to face the fact that every master other than Jesus will exploit and disappoint you will use you and then will discard you in the end I know it doesn't look like that sin looks so appealing doesn't it kids Whenever you get the opportunity to do something that's wrong or naughty or sinful, doesn't it look really good? You're thinking, this is going to work out very well for me. Usually in the end, it doesn't work out so well, but that's what it seems like at the beginning. And even we as adults fall into that trap. But when you realize that we all serve one master or another and that other masters inevitably abuse and fail us, suddenly we find that there is nothing as liberating as being a slave of christ jesus the church father chrysostom once said uh, one who is a slave of christ is truly free from sin and if he, and if he is truly a slave of christ he is not a slave in any other realm you see brothers and sisters we are still slave to other things only to the point that we are not trusting in christ but he has saved us to set us free and so paul starts by inviting the philippians to follow he and timothy's lead uh, to taste in the freedom of bowing to christ's lordship and paul is going to show the philippians in this letter how being a slave of jesus has set his heart free to accept whatever circumstances may come along as long as Christ gets glory through those circumstances. It doesn't matter how difficult or how hard or how painful those circumstances are, Paul will delight in them if Christ gets glory. Look at chapter one, verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It doesn't matter whether I live or whether I die. Whatever will make Jesus most happy, whatever will bring Him most glory, that is what I want. Or Paul, is a slave of Jesus Christ. Timothy, though, also is captivated by Christ, uh, in so much so that in chapter two, verses nineteen through twenty-four. Uh, Paul talks about how he cares more about his fellow Christians than about even his own comfort. That for Timothy to serve others was even more important than meeting his own needs. So where the Philippians were promoting their self and their own agendas for Paul and Timothy, it was about following Christ. Look at verses 1 and 2. Look at how many times, even in two verses, that it mentions Christ. Paul and Timothy servants of christ to all the saints in christ jesus who are at philippi with the overseers the deacons grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ for them to live was christ he was their master christ was the focus of paul and timothy's life paul sees christ as the only master worth honoring the only cause to make life worthy and death worth dying. So the epistle's opening verses express Paul's first point that that I want you to walk away with and that is this that the heart of joy is selflessly serving King Jesus and others for his sake. Right? I mean we think of joy is is something that meets our needs, something that 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 makes me happy, something that that will benefit me. And Paul says, no, 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 actually you have it wrong. He says the heart of joy is is selflessly serving King Jesus. It's being a slave of Christ Jesus and of others for his sake. That's what he wants us to see. Now, what would it do for our unity as the body of Christ for our patience with other who sees things differently if we were to think like Paul and Timothy, to see ourselves as slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, let me just, I want to clarify something. I'm not thinking as a congregation, we have great problems with division, right? So this is not the preacher up here trying to beat you over the head to say, you people are a bunch of fighting whatevers. And you need to get your act together. That's not what I'm saying. But the reality is, is where there is peace and where there is unity, which I think we have as a church, Satan wants to work. And we need to be aware of, of his strategies, of his plans. And, and we need to know what it means to continue to live in, in what Christ has given us in the church in that peace. And not only in our church, but in our other relationships as well. How, how would it impact our personal and family priorities in the way that we spend our free time and our money if we viewed ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ? And so we look at, at, at the church at Philippi, those recipients the Paul, who's the author, but I also want us to see he also speaks to the overseers and deacons. And, and this is a little bit of an adjustment that Paul makes to his customary opening. Uh, he, that Here he's not only addressing the church, but also the leaders as well. The overseers and the deacons. So for those of you that are not familiar, the, uh, the overseers, is, that's another name for elders. Okay, That's a function of the elders, is to be an overseer. And so he's saying elders and deacons, and he's writing to them. Now, you might ask, why? Why is he addressing them here in this letter when he doesn't really address um, in other letters for the most part? Especially since the fact that he doesn't really even talk to them throughout the letter. That's the thing that struck me. I thought, well, he's talking to the overseers and deacons, and then there's no instructions to the, the elders and the deacons for the most part in this letter. There's one place where he's probably making reference to, which I'll talk about in just a minute, but uh, but other than that, there's really no instruction. So why would he include them? And the answer is, we have no idea. Okay, I mean that's that's the short answer. We don't know why for certain. But but let me suggest a couple of possibilities. I think first, Paul may be reminding the congregation that when you're tempted to dig in and to insist on your own way, to remember that Jesus Christ has given you a network of authority and accountability in the church for your own good. That you're not left alone. You don't need to fight your own battles as Christians with other Christians. God has placed godly men over you to care for you and to watch over you and to help you through those difficult times. You see, you have elders who are in charge to watch out for your well-being and to correct you or to correct others when they stray. You also have deacons, and it's interesting, deacons are servants, right? Um, but, but the word is not doulos, like slave, but it's diakonoi, which is a, a different term. But you have deacons, servants, who show you how to care for others with the compassion of Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as we read in Mark ten forty five. In other words, learn joy of, of servitude by watching your leaders. Look to them. Let them be your example of how you are to serve and to care for one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Paul instructs Christians to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It's not easy to be an elder. It's not easy. Men willingly do it, but it's hard work. But I think it's interesting because in 1 Thessalonians 5, as as Paul is admonishing these believers to respect their leaders, he ends this way. He said, be at peace among yourselves. You see, there's that tie there between those who respect the leadership and those who live in peace in the church. And oftentimes, those who are are not respecting their leadership oftentimes cause dissension in the church. I think, secondly, Paul is likely reminding these church officers that as they... uh, As you exercise your authority that God has delegated to you, remember, like Paul and Timothy, that you are slaves of Christ Jesus. To be leaders in Jesus' kingdom is to be slaves of all. In other words, to be serving those whom you shepherd. You know, it's, it's interesting how much conversation is out there on the web about abuse in the church, and particularly about abuse in leadership. And, and, you know, that's become such an in vogue thing that you don't know how much of that is exaggerated. But the reality is, I'm sure there is abuse that happens out there. And there are things when, when, God, when leaders, I shouldn't say godly leaders, where leaders, you know, have forgotten the calling that God has placed upon their life. That they are not there uh, to, to wield the sword of authority over the sheep. But they are there to serve the sheep, to be slaves of Jesus Christ, to care for his people. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 3, this is that that part where I was telling you, where I think Paul could be talking to an elder. Uh, In Philippians 4 3, Paul lays on the shoulder of one of the leaders the heavy burden of helping sisters in Christ who are estranged from each other to to reconcile them with one another. And, And I've actually done that. In, in past ministry, there was one church I was in where there was these two women in the church who were like best friends and they had a falling out. And as the assistant pastor, I got the joy of seeking to bring reconciliation with them. You know, it was not easy. It requires a lot of prayer, a lot of carefulness, a lot of gentleness, a lot of listening, a lot of uh, holding out the word of God. And stuff. But praise God in that circumstance, the Lord brought those two ladies back together and they had many years of ministry together as a result of that. But it's not easy. But such intervention demands a spirit of selfless sacrifice. And and this servant's heart must be seen in the church's leadership and in the membership as, as well. It is this sacrifice, this service, this being Christ's slave that generates joy. But you might ask, how? How, how, how does slavery to Christ being a slave to Christ generate joy well look at how paul refers to these philippian christians he calls them saints now when he does that it sort of evokes a picture of privileged access to the very temple of god because the temple was a holy service it conveys the idea of being holy of of the privilege of standing in the presence of God. Uh, We might say that holiness is, uh, I like how one person, I think it was Dennis Johnson, who said it's a dangerous privilege, a dangerous privilege. Dangerous because the all holy God is not to be treated casually. And I think we've lost sight of that in the church today. You know, now it's Jesus is my best buddy upstairs in the sky type thing rather than the holy God. But it's dangerous because the all-holy God is not to be treated casually, but it's also a privilege because we were created to be near God, beholding his beauty and attending to his desire. You know, very different than you see in the church. We oftentimes treat God as if he's there for us to meet our needs, but we are here to be attending to his desires. And so one who is holy is set apart by God and granted access to, to his presence. And yet, amazingly, the Bible calls people who are not pure or free from uh, defiling sin, people who squabble with one another, people who get in disagreements with one another in the church such that they're causing a ruckus holy and saints. You see, Paul applies this privilege to a congregation that was composed of all sorts of people from very diverse ethnic and religious backgrounds. And, and since there was such a small Jewish population at Philippi, so much so that they couldn't have a synagogue, I'm guessing that most of these were Gentiles that, that made up this church. Um, and so this term of uh, being holy, of being saints, is applied to these Gentiles, to Lydia, to the jailer alike. But you have to ask yourself, how can this be? How could the creator who is completely holy allow soiled, sinful people such as Lydia and the jailer or Paul and Timothy or you or I to stand in his presence, admiring his glory and attending to his verses? Well, look at what it says after it talks about saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, Now, Paul uses that phrase in Christ, in him, in the Lord over 20 times in this book. Uh, There's only like a couple thousand words in the whole book of Philippians, um, between two and three thousand words. And 20 times in this book, he talks about that phrase in Christ. It was sort of Paul's shorthand way, um, shorthand for the truth that those who trust in Jesus are bound tight to him so that his obedience and his sacrifice. And his resurrection life becomes theirs. And it's no wonder, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 9, in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. But, but notice that God's grace in chapter, earth, excuse me, in verse 2, uh, which makes us fit to bask in his beauty is for all the saints. He says in verse 2, grace to you. That word you is plural. In in verse 1, he says to all the saints. In verse 4, he says y'all. Well, he didn't say y'all. He says you all. Okay. (laughs) Verse 7, same thing. You all. You see, God's saving work is for all believers, not just for some of us, Or it's God's not only at work in me. Which sometimes can become our mentality when we have a tendency to disagree with brothers and sisters and cause them harm. Where we think that we are taking the high road. That we are closer to God. That our will is more in line with God's will. Because we forget that God is working in all the saints. And so Paul uses the phrase, you all intentionally... Paul embraces every believer in Philippi, and they need to do the same with each other. So Paul calls them to unity because of the grace given to all Christians, even to those that we might disagree with. When priorities compete and our preferences clash in the church, uh, we do have a tendency to reduce that all to some. And so we find it easy to serve with some Christians, or we find it easy to give thanks for some saints or to pray for some saints but Paul reminds us that your status as Saints is in Christ Jesus and his grace alone therefore we must embrace all the saints in our love for others now our backgrounds and our life experiences may be so different uh, that we don't naturally fit together But if we are saints in Christ Jesus, our lives have been supernaturally and inextricably interwoven with one another. I think you've seen that as a congregation. Because I've heard a number of you say, wow, we're a very different congregation. If it weren't for Christ, I don't think we would hang out together. I'm not sure we would get together each week. But, you know, as, as you've gotten to know one another, as you've gotten to appreciate one another, I see that bond that you have... And that's that work of the Holy Spirit that he does uh, in the lives of his people. And, you know, I know that such unity is not easy to live out and practice, especially if there are frictions uh, that try the patience of one another. And when things don't go our way, it's very easy for us to pull up stakes and to move on to the next congregation rather than stay and to work through the hurt feelings and the competing visions. I see this all the time. You know, people just don't like the church for whatever reason, and they just pull up and they move on. But the problem is, is that those fractions, uh, that sin that they're wrestling with, whether it's their sin or others, when they leave, they take that with them because it's not resolved. So if you ever come to Kirk of the Plains and you come from another church, um, I will typically ask you, Was everything okay with the parting from the church you came from? And that's exactly the reason why, because if you're coming to escape something, it's still going to plague you. And I don't want you to have to wrestle with that. I want you to be set free in that and not uh, to wrestle. Well, in light of this, uh, let me let me look at uh, verse two, where it does talk about the grace and the peace. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's grace and peace have the power to turn selfless service into lasting joy. You know, Paul is evoking nothing less than the favor of God, uh, the embrace of the Father, lavished as a free gift on those who do not deserve uh, his grace, but deserve condemnation. And he's saying and he's reminding these Christians, the grace of God is yours. And, and and this grace results in peace. It's the reconciling reality that secures our place in God's heart. Nothing but God's grace could give us peace with God. You see, our sin creates this huge chasm of antagonism between us and our creator. And this terrible divide will not disappear by just pretending that it's not there. There are many people who live their lives you know, thinking that they're going to go to heaven. They have no uh, thought of God. They have no sense of, of the need to, to reconcile with Him. They just think, yeah, I'll just live my life. It's okay. I'll just move on, and then I'll be with God forever. But this is also true in our relationships with one another. I want you to listen carefully as I share this with you, because this is really important. When someone has hurt you, you can't pretend the offense is not there. You can't simply move on. As I said, it, it, it will still affect you. The injury has to be acknowledged and the pain has to be dealt with. Peacemaking always has its price even amongst human beings. The aggressor or, or the offender, the person who has committed the sin must pay the price of humbling himself. And admitting the wounds that his words or his deeds have inflicted, and then when possible, he needs to make amends for that. But but also uh, likewise the victim, I hate to use that word, maybe the offended. I, I just I think that word victim's overused in the, in the church. So maybe the person who is offended also, though, has to pay a price. Uh, the price of releasing that offender from the debt that he owes that person for the wrong that that person has done to them. And, and so there's a cost on both sides. Well, this is what I want you to hear, brothers and sisters. The wonder of the gospel is that we must admit that we are the offenders of our Creator. We must acknowledge our sin and the wounds that our words and our deeds have inflicted We must repent of our sin and instead walk in obedience to Christ. And likewise, the God whose honor we have violated has come to absorb that pain that should be ours and release us from the debt that we owe him. And so basically what I want you to see is this, that the transaction that has happened in the gospel between us and God is the same transaction that has to take place between brothers and sisters in Christ when there's been an offense with one another. There has to be a humbling and an asking for forgiveness. And there has to be a granting of that forgiveness and releasing them from that debt. And the peace that Christ has secured from us frees us to do that very thing. And so God's grace and peace not only imparts forgiveness, but it also transforms our hearts and the affections of our hearts. God's not so incompetent to leave us forgiven, but unchanged in the poison self-centeredness of our hearts. He deals with that, brothers and sisters. And Christ has set us free with such an invincible love that we will never again be satisfied to look to our own interests. Or to be fixated on our own reputations. Or to be enslaved to our own self-image. Now that's not to say we won't do those things. Or we won't be tempted to do those things. But there will not be a satisfaction. Because of what God is doing in us. To set us free from those masters. That we might be enslaved to him. And to serve him. And to experience true freedom in Jesus Christ. Instead Christ's glory becomes... Our heart's chief delight and his love for others ignites our compassion you see to receive grace and peace from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is to discover the joy of belonging to the master who made and redeemed us for himself and so when you think about the Heidelberg Catechism and I know that's dear to a a number of you you think about the first question right of the Heidelberg Catechism it's 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 spot on. You know, the Christian's only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, right? I am enslaved. I be, I, um, I, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, to belong to another, to belong to God, to be captivated by Jesus Christ, is true liberty. And as so as we consider these opening verses of Philippians, like I said, at first glance, it can just seem like a very simple greeting that we just need to skip over so we can get to the good part. But let me encourage you that the good part's in the greeting, that, that Paul now has gently brought us into the heart of the matter, subtly challenging our instincts of self-centeredness. You see, because we like to be lords, I mean, even if we can't make others do what we want, which we sometimes want to do, uh, we at least want to be the one who's in charge of our own lives and to do what we want. But Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ, they turn this upside down uh, and our assumptions that freedom is found in getting our own way. You know, so let me just ask you this morning, have you experienced the liberation of surrendering your life to the mastery of Jesus Christ? the eternal son of God who became a slave to free you from yourself and the masters that drive you. You see, God has designed us for togetherness and created us for community. But there's things like indifference and isolation and competition that that sort of reduces our thinking to think that I just need to look out for number one. I need to keep my options open. I need to avoid long-term commitments. Things like that that destroys that unity. But Paul and Timothy challenge our self-defensive individualism as they throw their arms wide open to all the saints in Christ Jesus. None of us stands alone. Each of us needs the support and accountability of the rest of the body of Christ. And so I want to ask you this morning... As, as we close, just to think, are there any saints in Christ Jesus whom you're having trouble loving as a brother or sister? Do you honor and heed the shepherds and the servants in whose care God has placed your spiritual well-being? We don't have deacons, but we have elders. Do you respect them? Do you honor them? Do you pray for them? Do you encourage them and respect them as they protect the church's unity and purity? Does the matchless condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ so grip your heart that you are both humbled and hope-filled all at the same time? Brothers and sisters, that's the beauty of being enslaved to Jesus that we might experience true freedom to be able to live with one another in community as well as glorify him. Let's pray. You for the peace and the unity that you have allowed us to experience as a church. But I also pray, Lord, that we would give ourselves uh, to these words that you have spoken to us, that we might guard that peace and that unity when Satan seeks to come in and and to divide and to destroy. Lord, I pray that we would stand firm and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would uh, cause all of us, Lord, to more and more and more so be slaves to you, to walk in the freedom that we have as you as our master. Lord, I pray for anyone that's here today. It may not be that they have a beef with someone in the church. They may, they may, but it may be somewhere else in their relationships at work or the neighbor or family member whoever it may be, Lord, I pray that you would humble us to live out the gospel message every day in the sense if we've offended someone to humble ourselves and to go and to ask for forgiveness. But also, Lord, that if we are the ones that are offended, that we would be quick to forgive and to release that person from the debt that they owe us. Um, that, Lord, that you might keep peace and love and love in our relationships that we would bear witness to the work that you have done with your church. Oh God, may your name be glorified. We pray in your name. Amen.